This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, episode number 36. As a guest, I have Lee Graves, who is better known as the RVA Beer Guy. He writes a twice-monthly column, twice-monthly, two times a month. He writes a column for the Richmond Times-Dispatch about the craft beer scene. Um, And he's recently published a book, Richmond Beer, A History of Brewing in the River City. It's a really great read. Uh, I highly encourage you to check it out. Great Christmas gift if that's if that's what you're looking for. Um, you can you can actually tell that uh, he is a writer and not just a researcher. Um, it's really entertaining. Some great stories. Uh, and I sat down with Lee Graves at Hardywood Brewery. Uh, we did have one of the the, the the you know somewhat infamous gingerbread stouts from Hardywood, uh, which is a fantastic beer. And, you know, Richmond is really going through a renaissance right now of beer with, you know, Hardywood, Ardent, Center of the Universe, and Ashland, and, and of course, Legend, right, among others. I mean, Legend's been around since 1994, but it seems like there's a different brewery popping up every day. Um, But if you, you know, you don't really care about beer, uh, I think this is a really interesting history as well. I mean, because it's a different angle, right? It's the history of the city of Richmond through beer. Uh, I I think that's a... Uh, you know, looking at the different angles, you get a richer, fuller picture of 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 what uh, you know what history is. Um, and you want to communicate, talk to uh, Lee Graves. You can follow him on Twitter at RVA Beer Guy. Uh, you can check out; he's got a Facebook page. If you just search uh, Richmond Beer, you'll find that there uh, for the for the book. Um, and you can follow the podcast at History Replays on Twitter and. History Replays Today on Facebook and Tumblr. You know, one time that I would not encourage you to have a beer is before you're going to go out and take a Segway tour with River City Segs. It is one of the sponsors of the show. River City Segs offers, uh, is offering their holiday lights tour through, uh, through the beginning of January. Um, it's really awesome. If you use the promo code LIGHTS, you'll actually get 50% off on that tour. You can find out more information at rivercitysegs.com. Uh, click on the tour uh, tour link, and it has uh, all the different tours, including the Holiday Lights tour in there. Um, you can also check out River City Segs on Facebook uh, and on Twitter. And you know, don't forget to use that promo code Lights, and you'll you'll get all kinds of uh, you know half off there. Um, pretty fantastic. Um, but you can be like River City Segs and invest in the podcast and become a sponsor or just by, you know, investing yourself and donating a little bit. Um, for more information on that, you can uh, hit me up uh, for sponsorships at Jeff Major at History Replays Today dot org or at, you know, on social media. Um, and you can you can also just go to History Replays Today dot org and click on the support button. Uh, and it has more information about sponsorships and, uh, and a very easy way to, to donate there. On History Replays today, I will actually uh, put a link that you can buy Lee's book as well, historyreplaystoday.org. Um, and, you know, it's going to be an excellent Christmas gift for the RVA beer level lover on, on your list. But you can you can get the book at, you know, most local uh, bookstores as well. Uh, a lot of the brewer, local breweries actually have signed copies if you want to just go out there and, you know, just, just go grab a book and check out... Uh, LeeGraves.com, and you might be able to find uh, one of the um, book signings that he has coming up, and you might be able to get it and actually talk to him in person. Uh, I do want to address the fact that we recorded at Hardywood uh, first during the conversation. 
you know, and, and they were incredibly generous. Uh, they had given us a spot. We had, you know, worked out with them. I didn't realize they were actually going to be closed, closing when we, when we started. Um, but we were sitting in a, in, in one of the, one of the rooms. Uh, it was nice and quiet until the, the heat came on <laughs> and it, so there is a section that there's a, there's a bit of white noise in the background. Sorry about that. Uh, but I also want to thank them and somewhat apologize to Hardywood. We were in there, you know, like I said, they were closed. Uh, I know they wanted to go home. Um, they were very patient and gracious with us. Uh, so thank you to them. So I started out talking to Lee Graves, uh, what, what seems almost like a stupid question, a very basic question, um, about beer. And, you know, it's really, what is beer, right? It's all these craft breweries. There's all kinds of different flavors and, weird things that are coming out. Um, I know there's something rice beer and, you know, different things, but so let's just hear what Lee Graves has his definition of, of what beer is. Like what? <laughs> That's <laughs> That's a great, that is a great question. What? Actually. Yeah. Like, especially in the context of current breweries where there's so much creative stuff being done that, um, uh, and I'll get back to a real straightforward answer to your question, but a lot of the brewers today are pushing the envelope of what we think of as beer mm -hmm. with everything from persimmons to coffee to gingerbread to um, uh, just everything you can imagine. Um, one of the great things about the craft beer trend, and it's it's more than a trend, it's a movement, it's, it's a phenomenon, uh, etc., but beer actually is um, defined by four basic ingredients, and that's water, hops, yeast, and barley, or grain in okay. general. And it's the, of course, the history of beer goes back to Sumerian civilization, and there are all kinds of ingredients used, and, and all kinds of ingredients in colonial brewing history. But there was a law passed in Germany in 1516 called the Reinheitsgebot. Reinheitsgebot, you know, whether you're North German or South German. And that specified that uh, beer um, had, well, they actually specified three ingredients, mm -hmm. the, um, the grain, the water, and the hops, because yeast wasn't fully understood at that time. It wasn't until the 1800s and Louis Pasteur and another, you know, a couple of other um, um, scientists who isolated yeast and understood its function and were able to really apply it in a scientific manner to beer. Right. But um, those four ingredients really were the backbone of traditional brewing. And okay. uh, um, so that's what we think of as beer. Yeah. All but right. there are all kinds of adjuncts like rice, corn, oats, you know, and everything else. Right. So in. The still has to have those things in it though it doesn't have to um there are um one great thing that's happening now is gluten-free beer where you get away from the the um the grain ingredients for people who you know have a gluten intolerance right so and there are actually a number of those on the market now huh. um and there are some beers that are out there that um, people kind of uh, <laughs> don't think of as beer that are main, mainstream beers. But, yeah. You know, they use rice um, and other grains that are cheaper. Um, and actually, Yingling, um, which is famous for being the, the nation's oldest brewery, mm -hmm. and of course, they had the Rockets Landing, the uh, Yingling, the James River Steam Brewery at Rockets Landing, mm -hmm. uh, they use corn in their beer. And actually, 
um, the Brewers Association, which is the nation's like umbrella organization for craft brewing, it's based in Boulder, Colorado. Um, they have a very specific definition for craft breweries, um, okay. and the traditional ingredients are part of that definition. Huh. And so that's an actual another. That's actually something else that I was thinking about. I mean. You know, especially with the stone brewery coming in, and you're like, you know, this is, I guess, it, I guess people used to say microbrew, but now they say craft, yes, right? Right. Because it's like that's a gigantic thing, right? It's not even like. Well, it's the phraseology is interesting because in that first wave in the '90s, mm-hmm. um, the term microbrewery was pretty much what craft brewing means. Right. Um, microbrewing now is, is a fairly um, specific indication of a very small brewery mm-hmm. um, in terms of barrelage output. Um, but a lot of people use microbrewing and craft, bre- you know, craft brewery interchangeably. Sure. Right, because I guess micro just implies that it's small. And if you're exactly. spending $74 million on a brewery, <laughs> those guys are not small. <laughs> yeah, that's like... <laughs> I mean, Stone is the number 10 craft brewery in the country, and uh, they put out a lot of beer. But they, you know, they are a craft brewery in the sense of they uh, use traditional ingredients and uh, they um, emphasize flavorful beer. Sure. And so, um, I guess going back to getting to the the history, the beer history here. I mean, we just talked a little about about the Jamestown folks and everything, and um, I mean, that's one of the biggest pieces of cargo they bring. Yes, right? it's just beer. Well, yes, de- um, definitely. Actually, um, there was more in terms of tonnage. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much in Jane. I'm sure this was true in Jamestown, but I don't think it was documented as well. But at Plymouth Rock, you know, when the ma- they had like ten times the tonnage of beer than they did water. Right. And the one thing that's interesting to realize is that they didn't drink water back then. Um, it, they came from a culture where there was no sewage system. Water flowed through the streets and polluted the rivers. Um, water was not safe to drink. And beer was actually um, the beverage that people drink on a daily basis. Um, it was a very low alcohol beer called small beer. Right. And um, but it, had, it was very healthy. It had grain. It would, you know it was called liquid bread, basically. So even children would drink it. And um, when actually when the um, colonists landed in Jamestown, they realized quite quickly that they had made a huge omission in not having a brewer on board. And they sent back to England and said, hey, we need a brewer. And they advertised for um, a brewer to come to Jamestown. And I think it was on the very next, you know, flight over. (laughs) Right. Sure. Um, Which is pretty intense. Like, yeah, that's a... It's a job I wouldn't want. It's, it's insane. Driving, like sailing across the ocean on this tiny little boat. Think about that. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. To look at the replicas of those ships and realize on. how small they are. Come on, it's amazing. I mean, and yeah. for like months on there. And, exactly. Um, I know the first one, The uh, when they're leaving, they actually see Haley's Comet. Oh, really? I yeah, didn't realize the first that. Voyage, like just as they're leaving. Like they just left and they're, you know, and they're superstitious and they're, you know, so they're like, oh. You know, half of them I think were thinking, "Oh, this is a great sign." The other, like, "Oh, we, you know, we might as well jump overboard now." <laughs> well, you know, one way or another, it was an omen, right? <laughs> but it's like something insane. I mean, like, um, you know, and the coincidence of that, like, just to think, "Oh, we're going to go to Jamestown. We're going to go, or you know, the New World, whatever the heck they was, they thought it was going to be." And then, 
you know, a comet. <laughs> and holy smokes. But um, so you were talking about in the book that they actually re-brew multiple times to make that like weaker beer. Yeah, if you think of like um, co- making coffee, uh-huh. if you use the same batch of grounds for like three um, potfuls of coffee, yeah. you know, you brew the first one, it's going to be fairly strong. And you use the same coffee grounds and run through another batch of water, it's going to be weaker. Mm-hmm. And then um, do it a third time. And actually, they did uh, three different versions sometimes. Um, and it was for efficiency. You get the most out of a bunch of grains. But that third um, version, that third run through, is going to be a very uh, weak beer, um, very mild, and uh, something you can serve at the table all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson had beer at the table for pretty much every every meal. Beer, right. beer and cider. And so then, um, that's obviously going to be well before uh, Richmond even you know is even exactly. thought of. Oh yeah. Um, but it seemed like it's kind of sketchy, like where the original first brewery is in the city, right? And yes, um, I kind of get that. Got the impression that there's because um, even by that point, right, 1737, 17, early 1730s, we're looking at Rockets Landing establishing, and um, you know, living in the middle of nowhere, basically. I mean, right? You know, this is right. A, that like was before a, Richmond was even right. existed. It was incorporated. Tiny island in the middle of the woods. In William, you know, it, it wasn't the state capital by right, any sure. means back then. Um, so, is there like this is going to be a, the kind of thing where um, people are basically homebrewing, right? Or, oh yes, yes, yeah. So um, it was a um, very much a domestic tradition. Um, and one thing that um, a lot of people don't realize is that women were the were the people who were brewing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, again talking about Thomas Jefferson, Martha Jefferson, both his wife and his daughter, their records of their home brew and um, the the pale ale at Monticello um, was much re- renowned in the Almar County. Um, yeah. There's a record of her buying you know a certain quantity of hops with an old shirt. So, right. And another thing, and this was this is interesting. Um, there, part of the record shows that slaves um, traded for hops too. That slaves grew hops and traded um, them off to mm-hmm. sometimes you know the the other people at the at the plantation or whatever. And um, the brother of Sally Hemings, who is of much renown at Monticello mm-hmm. for various reasons, yeah. <laughs> her brother Peter Hemings was trained as a brewer. Huh. And they and Thomas Jefferson actually set up a brew house there. Wow! So, um, and I love yeah. that bit of information because people don't realize the multicultural aspect sure. of it. But yeah, I mean, people brewed at home. It was very much a domestic tradition. Um, and uh, in the South, particularly in Richmond and Virginia and in the lower part of the South, the climate was not conducive to commercial brewing because right. it was it was too warm, basically. Sure. And and so I guess that's another thing I was thinking about. Is it do hops grow here? I mean, I oh yes, like, yes. Um, actually, back in those days, there are records of uh, hops growing wild. Mm-hmm. Um, barley was kind of hard to come by, and so that's why you find records of brewing with spruce, with persimmons, um, sorghum, um, sassafras. All these, you know, what we would think of as really weird <laughs> ingredients in beer. But beer was such a staple that they pretty much found whatever they could use to go into the beer, including pumpkin beers are phenomenally successful these days, but you can trace those back to um, Benjamin Franklin, et cetera. Um, 
So yeah, that's yeah. And is I mean, is there a possibility that someone could just walk in the woods and find hops right now? No, not, not so much. Okay. No, um, but what is happening is that with the craft beer um, explosion, that um, hops are now uh, being uh, raised commercially. There are actually two hop fields in Chesterfield County. Um, a number of breweries grow their own hops and use them for fresh hop beers. So a, you know, they'll harvest them and use them while they're still fresh within 24 hours. It's you know, it's called fresh hop beer, and it okay. it, it adds a very um, distinct flavor to the beer. Huh. Um, and the and, and like not even having the uh, like local stuff, but I know you were talking about uh, in the book somewhere the IPAs. I can't even remember. It was like made this Jack Jan, you know. Oh yeah, introduction to the city, um, and I actually never realized that the it's called an Indian Pale Ale because it was shipped to India. Yes, um, well, that that's a great story. Um, yes, uh, IPA. To put a little context on it, now IPAs are the single most popular style in the United States. Oh, okay, um, and. They date back to the 1800s. Um, British, the British colonies extended to India, and, and Britain had a significant um, footmark in India, both troops and commercial enterprises, etc. And those folks wanted good beer. You know what they regarded as good beer, and um, the India Pale Ale started out as these very strong, high gravity, high alcohol, highly hopped beers that they would put in the casks, they would age for a little while, they would put them on the ships and they would mature during the voyages to India. And so they would arrive and they would be just, I don't know, I would love to be you know, somebody right. and really taste what they were like. Um, but they were phenomenally popular during that time. That's and, interesting. Yeah, and so, yeah, the IPA stands for India Pale Ale because they were shipped from Britain to, to India. Right. And when does that get introduced into Richmond? Because I remember in there oh, it was like gosh, a... gosh, I forget the date exactly. It was in the 1800s. Yeah. I mean, I could look in the book, but I did yeah. find a little ad for it that um, pretty much signified that it was a, a new product in Richmond. Right. And uh, it, it, it did not make the big splash that the IPAs, you know, would become such a huge trend but and are they drinking at that point um uh ales yes well and, and, or, i mean is this a different type of ale or is this not going to be i mean there's not like a whole new thing it's just like a different flavor of the thing they've already got well that's one thing that's very interesting there were a lot of different styles okay. of beer um Predominantly ales up until um, the German migration in the middle of the 1800s, mm. um, and of course to, to put a little context on it, you could if you took a hatchet and 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 divided the beer world into two, you would basically have ales and lagers. Mm -hmm. And uh, ales um, predominated throughout history because you could brew them at uh, higher temperatures; they were much easier to do. Um, lagers developed because um, actually, in Germany, uh, they would take beers up to caves during the, the, the warmer weather. The beer would be in, in barrels or casks or whatever. And the yeast, which in ales would ferment at the top of the beer, it would settle down into the bottom of the barrel. And the beer would clarify. It would mature better, become crisper, etc. But it wasn't until the German migration into the United States, and, and that really pretty much hit Richmond, as you probably know, around the 1840s, etc., mm -hmm. 
this new, brighter, sparkling, crisper, cleaner beer lager was a phenomenon. Right. And it was a huge hit. I always did. It really changed the way that people were perceiving beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and, and at that point, that, that mid-1800s is also, like, it, it, I mean, are we looking at, like, each bar? Oh, there is, was a huge number of bars but, and saloons back But are then. they making their own, or is there... There was a real mixture of what was going on then. Um, there were some breweries. Um, there some records. There's a dispute in the records about um, there, a particular brewery at Harrison and Clay that mm-hmm. Edward Euchre um, started. And I, I found some accounts that say it was before the Civil War, some after. Mm-hmm. But um, there were breweries in Richmond. There were also some what we call come-here breweries that had depots and bottling side. The Euchres were huge bottlers. Mm-hmm. And um, they also had saloons, etc., where they would um, you know, bring in barrels of beer, casks of beer, bottles of beer, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so... It was a combination of things going on back then, right? And I think this is a weird, th- and I, you know, it's getting back to that now. Um, but I think for so long, I think most people probably even conceive of um, there's not a lot of difference, like at bars, <laughs> you know. And I think it's a, it's an interesting thing where where you know you you know the beer tastes better at that bar. Like nowadays, it's really not, except for specific beer um, centric places. Right, I mean, if you like Budweiser, you're going to be able to get Budweiser pretty much every, you know, every bar. And just the idea that you know, you could go into Shaco Slip and you know say, oh, "Man, this beer tastes bad. Let's go right next door." Yeah. And there's, you know, it's yeah. just a different way of life. That well, the, the competition was a little different back then. The um, you didn't have what we call now the three tiered system, which is um, the three tiers would be brewers. Who make the beer, mm-hmm. and then they the beer is distributed by the wholesalers to, and that's another la- tier or layer. And then the third one is the retailers. Mm-hmm. So beer now basically to get from a brewer to let's say you know Martin's grocery store it goes through three layers. Back then there were more what they called tide houses, um, where a brewer could uh, own the saloon or, or it, um, itself, mm-hmm. you know, like a let's say Bergner and Engel, uh, which was a prominent Philadelphia, Pennsylvania brewery, um, say, for example, and hypothetically, they could own a saloon, they could bring in beer, they could sell it at you know what it cost them produce and to try to undercut um, the guy next door. Right. And so they would have these price wars, and they'd say, hey, come on here for your lunch, too. You know, <laughs> drink all the beer and eat all the food you can. Sure. <laughs> so, like, happy hour is special. Oh, it's happy day. Right, happy day. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, I, and so that's getting, I mean, that's we're getting, like, well ahead of each ourselves now, but that's really what is happening now, right? With where, I mean, we're at Hardywood right now. I mean, it's basically going to, you know, I guess the, the law is the same now that they can actually own, which is basically a bar. That they own, right? Well, I mean, there's that- there's a distinction there. Um, there was a really significant um, bill passed in 2012, uh, Senate Bill 604, um, which really was the springboard for the craft beer explosion that's going on in Virginia now. Mm-hmm. And what that did was allowed the breweries to sell their beer retail. Um, they couldn't do that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to a brewery now and you can... 
um, by a pint. And what, of and what they had, they were supposed to sell it to a distributor first. Correct. Is that that's what? And then they Correct. could basically. The only way they could sell it on site was if they were selling food as well. Okay. And it's it's interesting. Back in the days of Legend, when they started out ninety three ninety four, they actually had a small little kitchen lunch room, you know, where you could go in and buy a sandwich, and that allowed you to get a taste of Legend right now. Yeah. But now, um, in Hardywood is a great example. You can go, you can buy a pint of, let's say, and we're sitting here with a couple of gingerbread stouts, mm-hmm. um, and you can get a sampler of like six or eight different beers, so small portions. You can get your growler filled, um, and, and it's actually fed not only the growth of breweries, but it's fed this um, tangent of businesses like the food trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go to Hardywood, Midnight, um, any of these wonderful breweries in the in the Richmond area, and they won't be preparing and serving food themselves. But you will be able to buy food from some of the food trucks, and they have proliferated right. just as some of these, like the hops business. The, um, it's just. It's really fed a whole economic development part that I'm not sure that everybody foresaw sure. you know, how much it would be, but um, it's delightful. Pretty awesome anyways, right? Um, and I guess that's from today's boom. Um, going right into the – kind of after the Civil War is – and actually, how about that? what happens during the Civil War? Like, I guess we – like, that's a pretty – right, because, uh, yeah – Chimborazo is, I guess, the, the main thing that you talk oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, um, well, keep in context that Richmond, we don't have all the records we wish we did because of the number of fires here, um, records destroyed in, in Revolutionary War and the Civil War. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of things we wish we knew. Chimborazo... It's like fire here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, one of my favorite stories is about... Um, well, first of all, Chimborazo Hospital was, um, I think, the largest hospital in the Civil War to serve not only Confederate in, but a few. Yeah, some years, of the estimates, yeah. some of the say, say it's actually the largest in the world at the time. Isn't that amazing? Um, the only yeah. thing that would, the only competitor at that point is uh, um, Florence Nightingale's oh, cool. um, hospital in the current during the Crimea. Oh, gosh. Um, but other than that, it's you know, it's you know, it's 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 an absolutely Massive, and it was built what in the eighteen sixty one or so, or right. you know, mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And there was a brewery and when not- it actually opens. I know the structures are built in eighteen sixty. Okay. Um, it's one of the, it's a uh, listeners need to stay tuned because there will be an episode about Chimborazo Hospital coming out. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, free advertising, right? Yes, right. But but there was a brewery up on Chimborazo Hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the while the hospital was in existence, the brewery was it, it it did not you know in a physical sense adjoin the hospital, but it was um, on the in the same area there, and it did feed the um, the needs of the hospital because mm-hmm. um, ale and beer was regarded as a medicinal had medicinal uses then. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing in the book, um, one of my favorite stories is about a woman whose um, whose relative was wounded in Fredericksburg and he he was basically dying he didn't respond he couldn't eat he didn't respond to any type of nutrition or whatever and she sent out someone to find some porter which is a style of beer and brought it back and he 
he responded to it, started getting better, and you know, it basically got better, you know, because and that was the one thing that he could hold down, and because of the grain in it, you know, which fed him, he, he um, and she, the, she's effusive in this account, which I which I quote in the book about just how amazed and, and blessed she feels about, you know, her, her I think it's her cousin you sure. know, coming back to life mm -hmm. because of beer. Right. And, yeah, and that's, I mean, I'll drink to that. I'll drink to being healthy. <laughs> yeah, right? That's always. But, you know, right after the Civil War was a great period um, in terms of the history of beer in Richmond. Uh, the record shows, uh, this, actually the city, city directory, I think it's 1866, mm -hmm. shows there are 16 breweries and bottlers in Richmond at that time. There weren't 16 breweries that I know of, mm -hmm. but, you know, bottlers. And then uh, 1866 is when we have D.G. Yungling Jr. coming to Richmond and setting up um, with two relatives mm -hmm. um, the James River Steam Brewery out at Rockets Landing. Yeah, well, then it's, you know, and during the Civil War as well, it's actually really interesting. I mean, I, was, I just don't want to like completely just plug every, like, um, episode, but the... Uh, <laughs> Feel free. There's actually a really awesome, um, which you may be interested, is uh, um, about the seedy side of Civil War. Richmond, okay, right. Um, where she, uh, um, she talks all about the, the amazing, I mean, a lot of the bars... Um, doesn't get into you know where the stuff's brewed, which I should have uh, asked her more about that. But um, you know the incredible influx. I mean, which is I, I'd that, be really curious to know if being brewing stronger beers would become popular or um, lager was so popular then that I'm not so sure that was. Remember, we had the German influx in the 1840s, and lager was the beer everybody wanted, and it wasn't the stronger beer; it was the more um, thirst quenching beer. So, right. so it was incredibly, incredibly popular. Um, even soldiers, you know, they were asking for lager. But you know, I mean, I think I just feel like drunkenness, you know, definitely oh. takes off, right? I mean, oh yeah. If you just got yeah. your leg amputated and saw like all your buddies, yep. you know, head explode on you, you know, you want to get drunk. I mean, you, you know, you don't, well, you know, you know. that it's very interesting. Um, actually, during the Civil War, beer consumption was at a peak, right? Um, in terms of per capita and barrelage. Um, but it's a very interesting distinction. A lot of the um, drunkenness was due to um, hot, you know, rum, whiskey, etc. Okay. Not beer. In Fair fact, um, and this is well before the Civil War, of course. But um, it was actually a thread going from then on. Beer was seen as a drink of moderation, and lager, in particular, was seen. Actually, <laughs> there was a court case in New York about whether or not lager was intoxicating. <laughs> I think they ruled that it wasn't. I mean, you'd have to check me on that. Yeah, there are these great stories of you know people drinking massive quantities of lager because they you know it's a drink of moderation. Sure, it's a drink of you know dr it's actually the drink that combats drunkenness because you know you can have um, you can, especially among the German culture you know you can go out to a beer garden and drink you know these lagers and and. Um, and not get drunk. It's the rum and whiskey and that. Right. So, you know, yeah. that, and it, especially in the years, um, well, the Civil War is a great time when that, you know, is, is true. And then leading up to Prohibition is just a fascinating time of, of how beer plays against some of the, the darker sides of alcohol. Right. I mean, I guess it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty, like right now, you could probably have two beers and drive legally, but if you have two martinis, 
like you probably have trouble walking as well. Well, it depends on the beer. You know, now brewers are um, uh, brewing everything from, you know, 4% ABV, uh, alcohol by volume, on up 10, 12%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can have a couple of low alcohol beers like a Kolsch or a Pilsner or maybe a, a Saison or something like that. But if you have a, a, a double IPA or an Imperial Russian Stout, you, right. you, you want to limit those pretty much. Yeah, and and so is this I actually has this on my notes? Is it? It may have changed because I want I do want to get back to the um, to DG Yingling, but the what's up with this, this story about the uh, somebody spooked a horse? Because it was was that oh. I have it on here as before the Civil War. Yes, but was that not after? Was there already a brewery down? Um, down at Rockets Land, like near Rockets Landing, and that was up on Chimborazo Hill. Oh, that well, was okay. Good, Goodman's Brewery okay. up there. Yeah, there's a great story of one of the uh, beer trucks, the being the horses being spooked, and it goes crazy and collides with I think a couple other things, and and it ends up with um, you know the the driver being thrown out, and and they worried that he was dead, and fortunately he was revived, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's just. It draws this great picture of this beer truck careening yeah. through, you know, etc. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Nowadays, you know, it would just you know probably just veer off to the right, but with the horses on there, I oh, mean, that yeah. they could keep going out of control. Yeah, you know, you know, spooked horses you cannot control. Right. So. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah. So so um, the DG Yingling is coming here after the Civil War, right? Or correct? I actually got confused. So, so it's after the Civil War, correct? Right. All right. 1866. And, and he's setting up a brewery, and, and that's also not um, that's not where we see Rockets Landing now, right? That's the original Rockets Landing. That is the Rockets Landing we see now. You can go okay. to the development there, um, and you can go down and actually see the caves where the beer was stored. Right, um, okay. This year it was uh, designated um, yeah. for that's uh, on the National Registry of Historic Places um, and on the State Historic Registry as well. And, and is there any building uh, that left other than the caves? Or? No, the building was uh, destroyed in a fire. Um, okay. I, I think it was 1891. Um, they had the brewery actually. It lasted from 1866 to 1879. Um, actually, there's one source that says 1878, but um, after the brewery closed, it was rented out to um, the Richmond Cedar Works, and they used it for a storage facility. And, of course, there was a lot of wood in there, right? and it caught fire. It was really quite a conflagration. It was a um, serious fire, but it burned. Here's this five-story building, and it was... It was architecturally significant too. Um, in fact, the documents that were put together for um, when it was being um, considered for historic designation points out all the features of the architecture that were um, specific to German breweries of the time, okay. and, and it was pretty cool. But yeah, it burned down. There's no evidence of anything above ground, but you have these um, vaulted caverns under there that um, where the beer was stored. And uh, it was very, there was, a, there, and, and of course you go there now, you can see the evidence of the railroad tracks there. Mm-hmm. Of course the river there was there. So it was a wonderful transportation location. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, uh, the story of that is very interesting because um, Yingling Jr. was the oldest son of Yingling Sr. who located, it started out as the Eagle Brewery in 1829 in Pottsville, PA, and, and now is Yingling in, in the nation's oldest brewery. 
But he, he, he um, as a youth, he studied how to be a brewer. I uh, went to Germany, went to Europe, and studied there. Um, he set up the Yingling, the, the James River Steam Brewery, with an uncle who was a successful brewer and a third party. And um, it was pretty much my reading of all that is that he was eager to, you know, stretch his wings as a young fella and set up, you know, something on his own in in a in a location that was not Pennsylvania. It wasn't, you know, daddy under daddy's shadow right. so much. So, um, but it, it it was wonderfully successful as a community center. There are all kinds of records of beer gardens there, they would have picnics and, and social functions and shooting contests. The Germans were big shooters. <laughs> and um, Sounds like a great combination. <laughs> yeah, beer, beer, beer shooting. Yeah. Beer shooting. It's like. I don't, I, there's no record of any fatalities yeah, <laughs> from there. But um, so You're still in the river. It's, oh, <laughs> you're all done, right? Oh, yeah, it's like right. you're right there. It's perfect. <laughs> but it, it did... Um, toward, one of the things to consider, and you know this from your history knowledge, in 1873 there was a huge financial crisis, panic, right. and there were so many businesses that went belly up. And um, of course, it was, it was actually like 70 and then 73. It was like a down. There you Everyone go. thought it was fixed, and then went right. Like 73 was even worse than. And how many banks and institutions went yeah, down? Yeah, it's huge. It right? was it's, huge, it, and we, you, know, you, I don't think we fully appreciate the repercussions of that, but. Um, the James River Steam Brewery lasted for several years, um, and actually, one of the brewers at who was at James River Steam Brewery went to the Harrison and Clay location, which is like one of the seminal points in Richmond beer history. And we can maybe talk about that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, George Robinson started uh, his own brewery there, which only lasted like a year or two, and then went belly up. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, Yingling's, uh, um, there's a great quote I got from him about he felt like the, um, the, the James River Steam Brewery did not flourish because um, he was treated unfairly. And there's this great quote that says, yeah, those Southerners, they, don't, they just don't drink beer. Right. <laughs> Which is sure. like, right. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned, that, I remember the book, you're talking about there was like still like four breweries. Like everyone else was doing all right. Like he couldn't. During the it. time, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. it's like no one drinks beer, but it's like, you know, they're just not drinking your beer. Well, once, uh, once George Robinson, and actually he called his the Eagle Brewery. It was funny. You know, Eagles, there uh, had been no shortage of breweries related to Eagles in, right. in, the, in the Richmond area. Um, when his operation um, folded at the end, uh, 1879, I think it closed, um, that was actually a low point for local beer. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1891 that we saw um, another local brewery actually sprout up. Okay. And, and which one was that? Well, the, 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 you have to look at two different people during that time. There were two um, kind of titans of that period. Um, in the German community. Peter Stumpf um, had been in New York and he had um, a background of um, working in the brewing industry. Uh, of course, he came in from Germany, he was a German immigrant, and um, came to Richmond as a representative of Anheuser-Busch. And at the same time, not the same year or anything, but during the same period, um, 
Alfred Rosneck came, and he was a representative of Bergner and Engel, which was a, a Pennsylvania brewery. And they, at some point, figured out, and there were a number of other what we I like to call come here, and, and Danny Morris, who's a fantastic beer historian, um, uses that term too, and I, and I like it, so I'm, I'm not trying to rip him off. <laughs> they, they started to think, well, you know, hey, um, we're representing these out-of-town breweries, why don't we start our own breweries? And so 1891, 1892, um, Peter Stumpf and Alfred Rosenek started two breweries, and it was kind of confusing because Peter Stumpf started off calling his the Richmond Brewing Company, and Rosenek started off calling his the Richmond Brewery. So you got a Richmond Brewing Company, Richmond, and it was very confusing. Mm -hmm. And um, Peter Stumpf later, he changed it actually very quickly to Stumpf Brewery and then to Home Brewing Company, which um, actually went up to Prohibition, um, morphed into a, a, a soda and water um, uh, business to last through Prohibition, and then after Prohibition, restarted as Home Brewing Company and brewed until um, 1969. Rich Brow beer. Um, people, a lot of people know about Rich Brow beer. Right. But anyway, that that early 1890s was again the sprouting of local beer culture here. Right. And so, and, and again, I say that's the first Rich Brow. Not the one oh, yeah. that used to be on um, Cary Street. Correct. Those are two different things. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the book, interesting, I actually never realized that. I just, I, it's probably obvious if you thought of it, but that's Richmond beer. Exactly. The German word for beer, brow, B-R-A-U. So rich brow. It, uh, one of the funny things I came across is they had a contest. They advertised in the paper for... We want you know suggestions from readers about this new. We want to name a new beer, and we want your suggestions, and we'll give you you know some prize. I forget what it was, and they came up with this. What I think is a really awkward name, and this was before Rich Brow, but it was called Home Brew Co. Right. <laughs> so it was like Home Brewing Co. It was like okay. <laughs> well, it's always dangerous because the uh, they did the same thing with the diamond. Yes. And that's what the citizens can do. They're like, <laughs> sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I'd love to see the, the things they turn down. Like, gosh, what a... Like, yeah. To exactly. get creative here, guys. <laughs> the diamond? Like, just the ballpark. Yeah. Um, the beer. Or, they should have called it the beer. Right, just the beer. <laughs> and, and one of the things I was wondering about as well, you are talking about how... Um, uh, and, and how do you say his name? Peter Schfumps? Stump. S-T-U-M-P-F. Stump. All right, so I guess Stumpf. Um, if I was German, I would say Stumpf. All right, we're well, gonna say Stumpf. We're gonna go with that. <laughs> um, so he's first repping Budweiser, right? Or, well, Anheuser Busch. Yeah. So is that like have they already gotten a national, um, you know, span, or is it that point that they are just is Richmond big enough market to that to be there or? Well, this was in the early years, um, and Hauser-Busch wasn't quite the national brand that it was later. Um, okay. It, had, it was actually just beginning. Um, there were some newspaper accounts and ads that I wish I could have included in the book where they first started trumpeting that they were the nation's largest brewery. Okay. Um, and those were in the Richmond papers. So 
Anheuser-Busch Bush definitely had a significant significant presence. And yeah. they were brewing a, a diversity of styles then, too. It wasn't just the um, mainstream, you know, the Bud Light or whatever that we're used to now, right. or Bud Straight and Budweiser. Um, um, a real variety of beers. And this is, I don't know why I even thought of this, because like Bud, Budweiser is a type of beer, is it not? Like, is there it's, not like... it's technically a Pilsner, okay. um, which is a style of beer. Um, it's not a it's not a type of beer in and of itself. Because um, is there it's not named a... after a Czech town where pilsners are awesome? Right. Because isn't there is there not a beer a Czech beer? Sure. That they call that's called Budweiser. Yes. Yeah, so they've been in law you know legal wrangles for years over that. Right. Because I remember because we went to Prague and they and they were like yeah Budvar Budweiser Budvar mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, Have you ever yeah. had any? Yeah, we had it while we were there. It's <laughs> pretty awesome, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> well, as you know, Pilsner is a great... Um, I could talk all day about that. It's one of the few styles where you can really pinpoint a significant date and time in history when this beer style was created. You know, a lot of beer styles evolved uh-huh. over time and this was when lagers were first being perfected and the residents of Pilsen, um, Czechoslovakia um, this fellow there in the 1800s said okay we're going to brew this specific beer we're going to use bohemian hops you know all the local stuff and the water was very soft and it was very um, you know you hear today the, the reference to a taste of place um, wineries say that, you know, food, um, some restaurants um, strive toward that. But this Pilsner came out, and it was golden and, and beautiful. It was a beautiful beer, and it was uh, awesome and in terms of taste. And it reflected a lot of the local agriculture. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish, uh, I want to say 1841, but I'm sure somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong about that. <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. But it, it's a wonderful story about here's, you know, this specific moment when a beer was created that right. and it it was amazing it changed you know so much of the brewing culture at the time yeah it's a good beer too oh, pilsner, we we i have i have two it's, what i call desert island beers for me one is pilsner urkel mm-hmm. which is what they call well urkel means original pilsner mm-hmm. which is brewed in czechoslovakia and the other one for all you stone brewing company fans out there is arrogant bastard <laughs> i love that beer it's a good one. <laughs> oh, it's it's I gotta have it. <laughs> the uh, and uh, so yeah, so so the, the the original rich brow that's here, right? It, it becomes more of a staple, right? And it, oh yeah. And one of the things that was interesting is, I guess it was talking about like after it had gone like kind of gone out of business that everyone was like, yeah, we loved it. we drank it all the time. It wasn't that good of a beer. Correct. It was it, its reputation was for being economical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I, I ran into many people who, you know, would say that it was not the best tasting beer. Um, it was a cheap beer that um, was thirst quenching, and you know, if you were looking for a cheap buzz, <laughs> but it was the only local beer then. So sure. <laughs> um, and I guess it's also because um, we're kind of that is getting into like pre-prohibition. 
right? That's the well, home brewing company, right? Was brewing beer up until Prohibition, 1916. Sure. So, and so was um, Rosenick Brewing, actually. So okay. Those two guys, the same two guys who started up 91, 92, were brewing up until Prohibition. And and the home brewery company is it home brewing company? Yes. Yeah, home brewing company. That was what uh, Clay and Harrison. Correct. That building is still there. Correct. Right. And it's, it's, even has a sign up there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other one, uh, the Rosenick Brewery, is at what is now Todd Lofts. And if you look there, um, it's very faded, but you can see the word Rosenick on there. Huh. And that's... That's, that's very close to hard where we are now. I yeah. mean, actually, Mike Gorman, who is a beer a historian and a beer lover and a beer historian, he and I um, were out here on the loading docks at Hardywood, and we could see that Rosenick that's awesome. building. Oh, it's so it's yeah. just so cool. <laughs> and uh, and he's, I've had him on the podcast for oh, talking about Lincoln and Richmond, um, oh, yeah. and just Civil War life in Richmond as well. As I can't say guy. I can't say enough good things about Mike. No, he's he awesome. was very helpful in getting the book together, and um, so yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and great for something like this because he has so much knowledge about everything, oh, yeah. that, and 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 likes to tell. Yep. Likes to tell. So, yeah. um, but the uh, so so this is so there's two giant breweries, and so that prohibition concept, right? So they're going into this is this is one of these weird things. So I guess um, I mean, are they getting flack? Is there any evidence that you know around the country there's you know um, what's the Molly Hatchet or something like is that the name person the woman that came around with a hatchet and would like break Carrie Nation or I don't know Molly Hatchet's a rock band yeah that's exactly <laughs> after I said it but there's a woman who got famous for her hatchet um, and probably I don't know during Prohibition and she would go around and like smash the cast sma- yeah go yeah. into the you know um, I mean yeah. is stuff like that happening or well no it, I well it might have someplace I, there's stories of that are, are probably um, I don't know I can't speak to that the, the thing I'm, about, I'm pretty stoked about Molly Hatchet that I just <laughs> okay. said that. Was, yes, trying, but I will say it, yes. I mean, sounded, the image is too good. <laughs> it sounded so right in my head. I was like, Molly Hatchet. And then you're like, yeah, it sounds right, jerk, because it's, <laughs> it's freaking Molly Hatchet. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it was beer or rum or whiskey, but yeah, I just I love the image of uh, you know, a woman with an axe going around there. The um, Prohibition is such an interesting thing. I, I, that's one area that uh, you could spend, you know, a lot of times um, getting into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the forces that led up to that had been in existence for a long time. Mm-hmm. Actually, even there's a count, I think it was 1735, that the colony of Georgia passed some ordinance about restricting alcohol, etc. And it was temperance related. Um, leading up to temperance or prohibition in Virginia, of course. Prohibition in Virginia became effective Halloween Eve, 1916. Right. This was before national prohibition. And even when the um, 18th Amendment was being circulated among the states, I think Virginia was the number was second among all the states to, to ratify that amendment. Right. But there were, there were a number, there were lots of forces. Some were um, uh, people who felt an, a moral imperative, imperative to come out against alcohol, mm-hmm. um, drunkenness, etc. And there actually, the it was another thread of it was the um, feminism movement at the time, women's mm-hmm. vote, etc., more equality for women, and they embraced the um, temperance movement as well. Um, and also, one thing that actually Mike was great for steering me in this direction. 
um, there are a lot of there's a lot of evidence of you know, the German community was so um, evident, so forceful, such a, a major part of the community, not only in Richmond but across the nation. And you think about um, World War One mm-hmm. coming into effect, 1914, and the one thing that happened at that time was the German, Ger- uh, many Germans were very proud of their their homeland, right. and they actually um, were very demonstrative of their um, affiliation with Germany, mm-hmm. and. It kind of led to, um, it worked against them in some ways because there was this very quiet understatement of people in the community who were seeing these Germans. They were out there um, having a good time in their beer gardens, drinking beer, you know, having this leisurely lifestyle. And, you know, they were talking a language that was all their own. And there was this little subcurrent of, of people who were rebelling against that. And the German brewers had very deep pockets, and they would finance a lot of this anti-temperance stuff, anti-prohibition, and they would also finance some of the, um, uh, I wouldn't say demonstrations, but the um, the demonstrative shows of support for Germany. Mm-hmm. And there was a backlash against uh, some of the German, German members of the German community then. So there, this, this whole pre-prohibition thing was very complex. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge political element too. Right. Um, you know, the, German, the General Assembly in Virginia, there were several efforts to have votes leading up to 1916. You know, um, my what I just I wish I had been uh, uh, you know on the streets on Halloween night of October nineteen oh, <laughs> thousands of revelers out on yeah. the streets and church bells ringing right before midnight and it's it your was... last drink bro <laughs> come on the the interesting thing is most of the saloons had already sold out their liquor. The, the couple of weekends leading up to Halloween, there were these great stories in the newspapers about um, people coming in and buying like 50 cases of booze at a time wow. and storing them in their homes because mm-hmm. domestic consumption was okay. Right. Um, and I remember one of the quotes in the, I'm not going to get it correct without reading it, but um, I thought it was actually a really beautiful thing, but you could tell it was... Um, you know, actively trying to fight that uh, anti-German type of sentiment, um, where it was saying, you know, we love the, the 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 homeland of Germany as our mother, but we've married the United States. Yes, actually, uh, yeah, that think, was yeah, that's that, a fantastic way to say that. I think it's, it was. It was a very touching thing because I think it was actually Alfred Rosenek who said it, who was, of course, you know, the Rosenek of Rosenek Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. And he was he was such a prominent figure, um, not only in the German community but in the larger Richmond community. Uh, he was a, a delegate actually to the General Assembly, and uh, yeah, in his speech on that day was German celebrate German American right. um, Day, and uh, he was saying, "Yes, we we come from a fatherland that we love or motherland. I forget that. I can't even know. Yeah, sure. yeah, and now." Um, we we are in Virginia, which we also love, and now Richmond is our home. Mm-hmm. And it was a really wonderful statement of embracing all that heritage as well as where they were now. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 very touching um, because these are people who, you know, left a culture. I mean, sure. can you think of that? Can, you know, leaving a culture where you have so much 
um, heritage and identity, and then coming to this country, which affords you a whole new opportunity, and you prosper in there, and so you feel multiple allegiances. Absolutely. Um, And... So the during prohibition, these guys, uh, you call it like near beer. Was that still legal? No, not okay. in Virginia. Right. And actually, it, Virginia actually outlawed malt beverages totally. And right. you and, could and, you could like you know sell oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, you could. I'm exaggerating, of course, but um, prohibition was kind of repealed in stages, actually. And near beer, three point two beer was. Um, made legal um, right when on the eve of full pro- full re- repeal of prohibition. Okay. So, in actually, the home brewing company started making three point two beer before, um, as as the you know more potent beer came. And that's three point two percent alcohol. Correct. Right. Which, what's here, a normal here. like regular like four and a half five percent like. So like like Budweiser's yeah. probably something like that yeah, like yeah yeah. Um, so that's not that much. That's not like. I mean, it's, it's near enough that you're like, that's good. <laughs> you know it's, all, it's all in context. If I'm going to have three, I'll just have four now. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the thing. You, know? uh, <laughs> you drink until you, you know. <laughs> right. It's, uh, to, to drown, I guess. Well, you right? know, it's, it's interesting, and this, this is going to skip ahead to current day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, you know, the pendulum always swings from mm-hmm. one, one side to the other. And... You had uh, a great market for um, extreme beers, double IPAs, imperial IPAs, imperial stouts, etc. And we're talking about alcohol, ABV, alcohol by volumes, up 9 10 11%, which is very potent for a beer. You mm-hmm. know, it's almost getting to, to a wine. Now there's a, there's a trend in the market to um, produce what they call session beers. Mm-hmm. Which are specifically in mid or you know like four percent alcohol, and the concept is you can sit down with your friends for a session of you know drinking beer and not have to wobble out and uh, you know have a couple beers, couple three beers, and uh, um, just relax and have a good time and not you know get all befuddled. Right. Sure. But that is a trend in the brewing industry right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it seems pretty good, right? It tastes good. You're doing your thing. It's well, that's the like... thing. The, the the brewers have been very creative in making very flavorful beers like pale ales um, in that um, alcohol range. And, um, you know, the it just depends like so much. Um, sometimes you want a low alcohol beer if you, you know, and sometimes you want something that's really strong. And right. so it depends on your mood, your food, um what what you've had, you know, whether you've had a good day or a bad day. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but so they're not making the tr- the, uh, the near beer, but they do start making um, what True Aid and well, that was well. Home brewing company survived through kind of a combination of things. Um, they actually the the corporation itself um, was um, put out of existence. Home brewing company okay. corporation stopped. Okay. And they and set up during prohibition. You mean correct? Uh-huh. Yeah, they morphed in. There was a Buchanan Springs company that did water. Um, they actually used some of the brewing equipment to bottle soft drinks and water, mm-hmm. um, and that was a huge factor in them being able to start up after prohibition. Okay, because uh, they 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 were they 
um, they kept some of this equipment. They had a huge upgrade after Prohibition to get back up, and um, that actually leads to another story about how we got to, you know, the mainstream yellow kind of fizzy beers <laughs> in the sure. 70s. But um, True Aid, Climax um, were some of the, the sodas that were available, and uh, um, there was a lot of corporate stuff going on there. Right. It wasn't Climax. It was an actual beer, though, at one time, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, because I know there was a. Um, I remember I've actually found this uh, on Pinterest. Um, oh, really? Which okay. is, was a picture. They had a giant. I think it was like a light up sign, climax on Belle Isle. I think Harry Colatz wrote about that. Really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, that photo was on. It was so weird. And it was like, uh, like yeah, you'd go across the bridge, and it was the I guess the eastern corner of Belle Isle. Yes, it's a flashing. He, yes, exactly. Sign that said climax beer. Yeah, um, which is just a fantastic. I mean, I guess I don't know. Just a weird name for a, for a beer, for sure. <laughs> I ain't going to touch that one. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but so after after Prohibition, you're getting into, there's not a whole lot of beers. Like the Climax beer was made here, right? Rich Brow. That was the Rich Brow. Yeah. Um, well, Rich Brow beer, you know, was made okay, here. Okay, right. Yeah. So so that's all. Right. Home Brewing Company. That's all Home Brewing And, and Home Brewing Company. But but if it ends at Prohibition, is it they re, just re, same people reopen it or is it? Yes, the Sitterdings and um, Berniers, etc., were the main moving forces, and they just they reorganized their corporate structures. They sunk a huge um, in, uh, investment into the facility, and again Harrison and Clay, they they got rolling there. So yeah, from 1934 basically up until 1969 they were the the Hallmark Richmond Brewery. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and go ahead. And and that was uh I mean it's kind of like jump around cuz like from there you like you were talking about like it goes kind of dry, right? I mean Well, it's and, an, there was an interesting phenomenon that happened and it it takes all a um, bunch of um factors into consideration. Prohibition was a big one. Um and the Roseneck Brewery, which we were talking about, brewing company, um, did not survive Prohibition. In fact, Alfred Roseneck died in 1917, and um, his obituary and remarks by his family indicated that um, one thing that really affected him was the loss of his brewery. Mm -hmm. But if you think of that span from, uh, you know, in Virginia, 1916, and the country at large, you know, three years later... Um, there was a span of years where these breweries were not able to operate, so their equipment started to going. Um, they were not able to update their equipment. Um, you come out of prohibition with far fewer breweries being able to operate. And okay, what was going on in 1934? Um, the Depression mm -hmm. and the Dust Bowl, and uh, a lot of um, grain was not available at that time, and it was leading up to World War II, um, and Grain was being rationed. Actually, grain was being sent to Britain, etc., leading up to World War II. During World War II, grain was rationed in the United States. So the breweries that were able to survive Prohibition started to um, use uh, far less uh, ingredients that are, um, uh, grain in their beer. So they were brewing uh, less um, flavorful beer. Also, with so many men overseas, the women became the um, the people buying the beer. Mm -hmm. And their tastes were a little bit different. They they preferred the lighter lager. 
And even though we had, you know, a bunch of um, GIs going over to England and Germany, of course, you you know, they weren't drinking beer in Germany. Right. <laughs> and there were, there were some great accounts of, the, the you know, the GIs in, in England saying, oh, what, warm beer? You know? Right. <laughs> so, so they come back, and by the end of World War II, the... You have from 1918 until that time when this, there's been this huge cultural shift, and not only within people's tastes, but there's huge consolidation in the brewing industry. Mm-hmm. And by 1970, there are fewer than 100 breweries operating in the United States, and I think that there's like only 40 brewery owners mm-hmm. are actually. And so, and that was one um, factor that led to home brewing companies' demise was these huge conglomerate brewers. They could, you know, the economies of scale were so significant that you could not keep up unless you were brewing huge quantities of beer. Right. And that's when, you know, Budweiser, Miller, et cetera, um, became the predominant forces in the beer market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that I would like to say, you know, you hear sometimes, um, you never hear craft brewers saying this except for a few. The The standards within those breweries are exceptionally high. You know, people may may not, you know, people in the craft brew brewing community might say, oh, you know, I'd never brew, a, I'd never drink a Budweiser again or a Bud Light. Right. But those, those are actually brewed to incredible standards. Um, and... Um, they represent really a very high quality of um, high level of quality in the brewing. But anyway, at that time, seventy, you've it's, got it's a high quality. But it's, it's for the masses, technically, right? Which exactly. is people don't like. Exactly. That's why people don't. Exactly. This is not. It's like the old Model T Ford. You know, you make a car that everybody buys, and uh, but yeah. So anyway, to follow that train of thought, and you have people going over to you know think about the sixties. 70s kids with backpacks going over to Germany, you know, Europe, England, etc. They taste the beautiful beers there. They come back. They want to replicate them. They start home brewing, and actually, it's the it was the home brewers that fed that first wave of microbrewing in the 1990s that mm-hmm. took off so much. Sure, I think it's interesting that the uh, those big conglomerates put the. The actual company was called Home Brewing Company. <laughs> you know, it's the irony there that it's like well, they, the home brewers come in and start fighting the. Well, the home brewing company was great. In all their slogans, they pitched the value of local products. You know, you hear that so much today, you know, local products. And this was a company that was saying, you know, buy local. Right. Absolutely. And the. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's also, we've been talking for a while. He just walked through, he just came in. I was, oh. I was actually wondering if they, like, if, any, if we got locked in here or what. I, don't know. Like, what I think I think he's telling us something. Yeah, he's like, I think he's telling us uh, something. You guys got probably like 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, oh, okay. it's cool. So, um, I mean, but it's a good, I mean, because we don't want to talk the whole thing. We want people to buy the book and, and read it, right? There's uh, tons of stories in there. Yeah, there's lots um, we, that we haven't, haven't talked covered. About. But, yeah. um, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I. I but this, I guess, where we are right now is pretty fantastic with, you know, Hardywood and Arden, um, and there's so many places that keep popping up, just even just in the city. I mean, not to mention, you know, Ashland and, you know, around Virginia. Right? It's, it's, it's wonderful. I think I was telling somebody before that I think people will look back on this as the, the golden age of brewing in Richmond because mm-hmm. there's been such fast growth and there's been such a proliferation of creativity 
They, you can go around from brewery to brewery in Richmond, and, the, and I'm thinking the greater Richmond area, and find so many different styles of beer, everything from to box to sours to IPAs, of course, pale ales, you, alt beers, um, gosh, cream ale. Uh, I mean, you know, I could go on imperial stouts, sure. uh, et cetera. So. Well, it's interesting because it gets back to like what I was saying, like the kind of full circling it, and awesome is that. Like if uh, if we're here, you know, if Hardywood is a terrible job, then there's another place, you know, <laughs> like the, the competitive element of like, you know, your beer's good or yours isn't. Let you me know. jump in right and, there. <laughs> but, you know, but it's, but it's that, you know, as opposed to, you know, where, you know, previously it's like Budweiser or like Yingling. It's like every place, the bar is, the bar adds a lot, but well, your beer, you have the same, you get the same beer everywhere, right? Well, and, and that doesn't, but nowadays it's. It, the, the competition of saying, I mean, it's it, that. I mean, that that gingerbread stout we just had is. You're not getting that anywhere else. No, okay. and there are two things I'll jump in on. Um, you use the word competition, and that um, that's true. But you'll find in the community of brewers and brewery owners, et cetera, there's an amazing camaraderie and collegiality. You'll find there's collaboration on beers. For example, Hardywood collaborated with um, Midnight. One of their first beers was the uh, Banana Pancakes beer. which um, So there's that spirit. And sure, there's competition because for shelf space, for taps, etc. Um, but that's all kind of a sense of friendly competition. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, no. And actually, and one of the questions I get a lot is how would you rate Richmond beers in context of a larger... Um, lens, you know, com- in comparison with Virginia as a whole, in comparison with the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. And some of the things I point out, first of all, um, we're here at Hardywood, so I'll start there. Hardywood won a gold medal at the 24th, the recent uh, Great American Beer Festival for their Raspberry Stout. Uh, to my knowledge, that's the first time a Richmond brewery has won a medal of any kind at the Great American Beer Festival, and that's the most prestigious beer festival in the in the United States for uh, for U.S. brewers. Um, one of their beers, their gingerbread stout, was um, rated got a perfect rating from one of the prominent beer magazines. We have beer writers around the country who are now um, select who are focusing on Richmond breweries. Um, Strange Ways has been singled out as a brewery to watch. Uh, Licking Hole Creek in Goochland County, their Rosemary Saison was named by one of the beer writers as the best beer to try at the Great American Beer Festival. Of course, Mekong Restaurant has three times, you know, won um, it, the top award in its voting class in for the you know best beer bar in America on craftbeer.com, which is absolutely incredible. Um, what else? <laughs> you yeah. know, so uh, we had three people from the Brewers Association, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the nation's um, kind of overarching craft beer um, nonprofit uh, group. They were in Richmond and uh, went around to a bunch of the breweries and actually had a program here at Hardywood uh, where they talked about Richmond and Virginia as um, what would it take we're on the path to being a, a beer mecca, mm-hmm. like Asheville. Um, Asheville is a beer mecca on the East Coast. Richmond is not there yet. There are several things that um, could probably fall into place. 
And, of course, with Stone Brewing Company announcing that it would have its East Coast facility here, that really puts a whole different perspective on Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will be awesome. I, I think they make awesome beers. I think it will be wonderful for the scene. I hope that they are supportive, um, aggressively supportive of the local breweries. Um, every, I, I did a survey of the local brewers, and um, they are very excited about it too, generally. I, I won't say there's a, you know, total, <laughs> everybody is not as uh, excited at, to the same level, but, sure. but there, there, there is a genuine sense that there is so much happening in Richmond now that it's just incredibly exciting. Yeah, incredibly. Absolutely. absolutely. It's very exciting. And that's, that's a great way to end, just being excited. Right. <laughs> I'm right excited. Here. Are I'm you fine. excited? Very excited. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, I appreciate your time. Oh, this is awesome. I appreciate your attention and, uh, and your support. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I just hope you know I gave you what you wanted. I mean, I enjoyed the conversation thoroughly. I thought your yeah, questions were. That was cool. That was a good time. Yeah. Okay, so Hardywood does a fantastic job. I do love their beers. I was using that as an example. The competition. Right, not trying to make any comments on on their quality. Uh, I think it's a fantastic beer. But again, thanks to Lee Graves. Uh, thank you to Hardywood, especially the the fella who I wish I had gotten his name, uh, who was working. He actually comes through there. You could hear at the end. Um, I know that he wanted to go home, and he was very nice about the whole thing. I know he was cleaning up, but I'm sure he was like, "Yo, why don't you guys get the heck up out of here?" Um, but go buy the book. You can buy it plenty of places. Again, go down to a local brewery. Go down to Hardywood. Pick up a copy there. Grab a beer. And, you know, tell them that you heard about it. History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Um, A lot of the different breweries actually have it. And tell them you heard about it on the podcast as well. Why not? Uh, And as always, let me know what you think. Drop a line on Facebook, Tumblr, or at History Replays on Twitter. Uh, you can also contact me, uh, Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. You know, invest in the podcast. You know, click that sponsor button. But really, you know, every little bit counts. Um, thank you very much. And, oh, yeah, write a review. If you're, especially if you're listening this far, you must have at least begun to enjoy it. Please write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this. And uh, thanks for listening, and make it a great day.